0: The time is now 6 o'clock and welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, February 19th, 2024. I'm your host, Sam Swartz.
1: And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. In tonight's news…
0: The governor has signed his own voting map proposal into law just weeks before the state Supreme Court's deadline to finalize their own redistricting plan.
1: And in the second half, the government's calendar, the anniversary of a social justice organization's founding, a new mixology feature, and two movie reviews. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
0: Tomorrow is Election Day for the spring nonpartisan primary. Two districts are holding elections to select candidates for the spring election. District 13 on Madison's near West Side is holding primary elections, as is District 36 near Cottage Grove. Alders for the city of Monona and some wards in the city of Sun Prairie will be on the ballot in those municipalities, as well as candidates for Middleton Cross Plains school board election. Interested voters should check out our voting guide at wortfm.org to hear directly from the spring primary candidates in the Dane County board race.
1: A coalition of advocacy groups organized a rally today in Milwaukee, calling for the resignation of Robert Spindle from the Wisconsin Election Commission. Spindle recently settled a civil lawsuit where he admitted to knowingly serving as a fake elector in order to subvert the 2020 presidential election in Wisconsin. As well, Spindle released a statement in 2022 in which he said that he was glad voter turnout was down in Milwaukee, a move that organizers say shows he is a proponent of voter suppression efforts. Wisconsin Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu has stood by Spindell during previous calls for his removal. LeMahieu has defended Spindell's actions, calling them part of a failed legal strategy and not an effort to overturn an election.
0: A bill designed to allow election clerks in the state of Wisconsin to begin processing absentee ballots before Election Day is unlikely to pass the Wisconsin Senate in time for the 2024 elections, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. In a statement provided to WISN-TV, Senate Majority Leader Devin LaMayhew said that the bill did not have adequate Republican support to pass the chamber after the committee overseeing the bill indicated it was unlikely to hold a vote for it. Allowing clerks to get an early start on processing absentee ballots would decrease the workload that clerks' offices feel on election day, which advocates say would increase vote count accuracy and efficiency. Sudden increases in vote counts due to absentee ballot processing have also been the target of conspiracy theories and election denialism, as the current process can result in sudden jumps in vote counts that strike some as suspicious.
1: The Wisconsin Senate Committee on Financial Institutions and Sporting Heritage voted to advance three of Governor Evers' four appointees for the state's Natural Resources Board, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The fourth, Todd Ames, was rejected on party lines. The appointees next head to the full Senate for approval. The Senate has previously rejected Evers' appointees to the board. A bill that allows for 14- and 15-year-olds to work without needing a work permit has passed the state Senate and Assembly, reports WKOW News. The bill will head to the governor's desk for his approval. The Wisconsin Assembly on Thursday passed a series of bills designed to regulate artificial intelligence in the state, reports the Associated Press. The bills would require that political groups disclose when they use AI to generate ads and will audit state agencies on how they use AI, among other regulations.
0: The Dane County Board has joined the list of political leaders calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Dane County Supervisors approved the resolution at their last meeting Thursday, alongside other resolutions condemning anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. The resolution urges the release of all hostages and cessation of hostilities towards civilians. It also urges the Biden administration and members of Congress to oppose additional military funding and instead provide humanitarian aid. The city of Madison has released a similar call for a ceasefire in the conflict.
1: The University of Wisconsin-Madison branch of Young Americans for Freedom is hosting a Q&A event in March with Michael Knowles of The Daily Wire. Knowles has received criticism in the past for his comments disparaging same-sex marriage, trans people, and the climate justice movement. Previous Knowles speeches on campus have been disrupted by protesters. The event is open to the public, but significant security measures are likely to be enforced.
0: A two-month-long construction project on Madison State Street is expected to close the road down to a single lane of traffic, reports the Capital Times. Starting this week, the city is beginning its project to build two bus stations for the rapid transit bus line on the Thrufare. The bus stops were a sticking point for the new planned transit system with the original design reduced in size in order to be less disruptive to the storefronts in the area. Sidewalks and bicycle traffic will be open for the duration of the project.
1: In an email last week, toy company Mattel announced that it would be closing the American Girl headquarters in Middleton and would be relocating the work to California, reports the Capital Times. The company plans on closing its offices by late spring, with workers either relocating or switching to remote work. Approximately 30 workers will lose their jobs due to the reorganization. American Girl dolls have been struggling to sell in recent years, with a more than 60% drop in revenue since 2016. Shareholders in a recent call with Mattel had urged the company to sell the American Girl brand, as well as its Fisher-Price line of toys. Those were the headlines. And now, on to the rest of today's top stories.
0: This morning, Governor Evers signed a redistricting bill into law. According to the Legislative Review Bureau, the bill codifies the same voting maps Evers submitted to the state Supreme Court. That comes just weeks after the governor vetoed a Republican bill that also would have codified his maps with some notable amendments. Jay Heck is the executive director of Common Cause Wisconsin, a nonpartisan pro-democracy organization. WORT News producer Faye Parks spoke to Heck earlier today to get some clarity on the approved maps.
2: Thank you for joining me, Jay. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. This is a uh, very big day for Wisconsin, for democracy. It happens to be President's Day, but uh, it's got uh, a lot of good things for Wisconsin as well because of what's happened in the Capitol today.
3: So we're going to have to go back a bit for folks who haven't been keeping up with the goings on in the legislature. What attempts have state Republicans made over the last month to preempt the Supreme Court's redistricting process?
2: Well, you know, when the Supreme Court declared that the state legislative voting district maps that had been put in place in 2021 and 2022, and then originally in 2011 were unconstitutional, there was a mad scramble on the part of the majority Republicans to try to put in maps that would still advantage them, but that they thought would, you know, at least pass muster with the Supreme Court to some degree. In January, they did try to pass a version of the maps that Governor Tony Evers submitted to the Wisconsin Supreme Court to replace the existing maps, but they were tweaked to advantage Republicans and keep them in the majority. So fair maps groups like Common Cause and and others urged the governor to veto those maps, which he did. And then finally, as the clock is ticking down now towards a Supreme Court decision, Republicans finally realized that the only option they had left really was to put forward the governor's maps in the hopes that they still might be able to have a fighting chance in an election to hold on to their majority. But the maps that the governor put forward dramatically changed the landscape in Wisconsin so that we will basically have 50-50 maps. Wisconsin's a purple state, pretty evenly divided between the two major political parties, and the maps that he signed into law today reflect that fact. They don't favor Democrats. uh, They don't favor Republicans, certainly. They're pretty equal, and each political party will have a chance to be able to win control of the majority if they have good candidates and if they have better ideas that appeal to Wisconsinites. So, that's really what we wanted. That's really what the governor said he was interested in doing, is having fair maps so that you know everybody's vote will have equal weight.
3: So what's next? How will the new maps change this
2: year's elections? The new maps will change dramatically, I think, the composition of the legislature, because there will be many pairings, there'll be many particularly Republican incumbents in some of these gerrymandered districts will have to face off against each other in the primary elections this August, and the districts have been redrawn so the Democrats who previously had no chance to win many of those districts will now have a pretty good chance or an even chance to win them. So I suspect unless there is some huge wave election for one side or the other, the wave election is when, you know, there's a huge sweep by Democrats or Republicans. You know, that just often doesn't happen in Wisconsin. It's usually 50-50. But I think we will see vast changes in the uh, political composition of the legislature. And again, much more, much closer to a 50-50 split in each legislative chamber. And more, more importantly, I think each political party has a fighting chance to win control. And so that's the major change we'll see. Now, the other reason these maps are better than a court-imposed map that the Wisconsin Supreme Court might have just picked one and said, here's the new map, is because when you have legislation signed by the governor, that becomes a law, and the force of law is much less susceptible to a legal challenge than a court-imposed map. And so if there had been a court-imposed map, we might well see a different map, if the composition of the Wisconsin Supreme Court were to change in the election in 2025, when Justice Sam Walsh Bradley is up, if she were to lose and conservatives were to gain control, they could impose their own map. Or if a Republican governor is elected in 2026, they could all change a court-imposed map, much more difficult to do with a law that is in place so we are likely to see these maps be in place until 2031, which is when the next redistricting process occurs. And that provides certainty and you know a real sense of stability, I think, for Wisconsin voters so that we don't have to have this gigantic fight over redistricting every year as we, as we seem to have had the last few years. So I think that's a positive development
3: backing up a bit to clarify Mm -hmm. this won't require all state lawmakers to run for their seats this year only the ones that are already at the end of their terms
2: well it will require everybody in the state assembly to run in 2024 because those elections are every two years if for people that serve in the assembly so all of all 99 assembly people will run again but only half of the state senate because state senators have four-year terms So only people that were elected four years ago in 2020 and are running for re-election or retirements and new ones, uh, those are what we call the even-numbered state senate districts, they will all be up to this year. And then the other half of the state senate will be up for election in 2026. and, And that's how it's always been in Wisconsin. But that's right, just half of the state senate and all of the members of the assembly.
3: My understanding is that numerous state Democrats actually voted against this bill, but some, including Senator Mark Spreitzer of Beloit, stood behind the governor when he signed it into law this morning. Why do you think that is?
2: Some Democrats thought that it would be more advantageous for them if the court were to select one of the other maps that they were considering. And indeed, some of those maps might have given the Democrats a couple more seats. But those were maps that obviously would not have passed in the legislature because the Republicans cur- currently control the maps. But uh, Senator Spreitzer, Senator Brad Paff, a number of other Democrats, uh, even uh, Senator Hesselbein, the Democratic leader, have all put out statements today praising the governor's action. Because these maps are much better for Democrats than the current maps are, and although they might not be an ideal map for giving them absolute outright control, it gives them a fighting chance to to win control both chambers of the legislature. So that's why I think you're seeing all Democrats rallying around. And of course, Republicans, although they would prefer to have huge majorities, you know, they, they, they voted for this, uh, this legislation. And so all of them had better stand behind it as well. And also, you know, we'll be very interested to see if there'll be any court challenges by Republicans and conservatives. Uh, there shouldn't be. These maps are very stable, and I think they could withstand any legal challenge. But, you know, again, uh, the Republicans are, you know, they're not re- not—they're not happy at all with today because, because they will be losing the huge gerrymandered majorities that they put in place 13 years ago.
3: I think that covers all of my questions. But is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Anything they should keep an eye on?
2: Well, I think the thing to keep an eye on is that uh, many of the districts that are currently in place for your state assembly and state senate are changed rather significantly by today's new law that's that's been signed into law today by governor evers and so you know pay pay some close attention about how your district has changed. And that'll all come out in newspapers and, and you will certainly hear about it. But it may be that certain areas that you are in now, a, a certain assembly person or state senator that you have now will no longer be that that representative and that you'll have either new people all together or a different incumbent uh, state senator or state representative representing your district. So, you know, you need to pay attention to that and a little bit too about your district and how it's changed. But again, all that information will be forthcoming in the weeks and months ahead. And I would think that by the August primary and then the November general election, most importantly, everybody will have a a pretty good sense of what their district looks like, who the candidates are. And this is the most important thing. I think so many more Wisconsinites will now have a chance to have their voice heard at the polling place, because again, uh, there'll be many more competitive elections throughout Wisconsin. You know, Madison, uh, the Madison area is pretty solidly Democratic, so we're not going to see a lot of change in this area, although you'll see districts change a bit. And there's certain parts of Wisconsin that are you know extremely Republican, and, and so there won't be a lot of change there. But there'll be changes on the margin, and that'll, that'll, that'll result in probably different majorities or, you know, much closer majorities of, of Republicans or Democrats overall for control of the legislature.
3: Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Jay.
2: Does that cover everything for you?
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
2: (laughs) Great part. Thank you. I appreciate it.
3: That was Jay Heck, Executive Director of Common Cause Wisconsin. He says the new voting maps signed into law this morning reflect Wisconsin's political landscape as a purple state, and this year's elections will be more competitive.
1: After over a decade of having what many political experts say are the most gerrymandered maps in the nation, Wisconsin has new ones signed into law today by Governor Evers. They're hand forced by an exigent decision from the state Supreme Court. State lawmakers signed up, or state Republican lawmakers signed off on the new maps last week, sending the proposal to the governor. After that vote, one Republican state senator characterized Republicans as not just stuck between a rock and a hard place, but quote. It's a matter of choosing to be stabbed, shot, poisoned, or led to the guillotine, unquote. For more on the new maps and how they'll impact your district lines this November, WORT News producer Faye Parks has all the details. Governor Tony
3: Evers changed Wisconsin's political landscape this morning with a stroke of the pen when he signed into law new maps for Wisconsin's legislative districts.
4: What a Monday
5: morning. <laughs> Anyway, good morning, and thanks, everybody,
6: everybody for being here. Folks, it's a new day in Wisconsin.
3: The maps signed into law were proposed by Governor Evers and approved by legislative Republicans last week. Unlike a previous attempt, these maps have no legislative changes that would protect the district lines for some Republican incumbents state Republicans sent the bill to his desk in a hurry, their hand forced by a liberal leaning state Supreme Court.
6: They're my maps, nothing more and nothing less.
3: But what changes here in Madison? The Madison area districts in both chambers are shifting outward. According to projections from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, more Madison suburbs and more of South Central Wisconsin in general will likely shift from red to blue in November. Right now, two Democrats represent Wisconsin's state capital in the Senate, Kelda Royce and Melissa Agard. Agard, occupied with a run for Dane County Executive this fall, isn't running to retain her seat in the Senate. Now, the two Madison Senate districts are District 26 and 27. Senator Kelda Royce represents District 26. Well, my district basically shifts um, eastward, so I take more of the north side and east side of Madison, and then I move um, east into Monona and McFarland. And I lose the western and, and more south parts of the district. And Senator Diane Hesselbein represents District 27. The district that I will be representing, it changes a bit, has more of Madison, actually. I believe I lose um, a lot of Baraboo in that area. Meanwhile, Madison has four representatives in the state assembly. Samba Balde is one of them.
2: I used to be just around the city limits where Sun Prairie was completely out of the district. Everything was basically Madison uh, uh, and stuff like that. But now Sun Prairie, the whole of Sun Prairie, you know, and part of Columbus is part of the district. So it's moved outward some.
3: The other three Madison representatives, Francesca Hong, Sheila Stubbs, and Lisa Subek, were not available to comment this afternoon. All but two state Democrats voted against the bill, arguing that there were more favorable proposals before the Supreme Court. Senator Royce voted against the bill. Well, it's unfortunate that the Supreme Court was not allowed to finish their important work, and that process was cut short because of Robin Voss's shenanigans. But the maps that we have in place now are certainly much fairer than the current maps, and I am gonna continue to be laser-focused on building a Democratic majority in the legislature. According to an analysis by Governor Evers, the new maps are liable to make elections in Wisconsin competitive again. There is now a roughly 50-50 split between Democrat and Republican-leaning districts in the state. In the Senate, 14 districts out of 33 are projected to be blue, while 15 are projected to be red. Four districts are a toss-up between the two parties. And in the Assembly, 45 districts out of 99 are projected to be blue, while 46 are projected to be red. Eight districts are a toss-up.
6: Under these maps, it's more likely that each party will win a majority of legislative seats when they earn the majority of their votes. Common sense.
3: The maps will be in place for elections this November. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks.
1: The transition to clean energy sources includes the agricultural sector. There's federal funding to help farmers add a variety of renewables to their operations, including a controversial process that uses methane from livestock waste for certain types of energy. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has the story.
5: Wisconsin is part of a movement to reduce livestock emissions by converting manure into energy sources, and there are calls to weave in a careful approach anaerobic digesters create biogas by removing methane from livestock waste. The gas can then be used for electricity, heat, or vehicle fuel. Supporters say the process limits methane from reaching the atmosphere. The USDA's REAP program helps fund these projects on farms in Wisconsin and elsewhere. Andy Olson with the Environmental Law and Policy Center says the jury's still out on the effectiveness of digesters And he urges the usda to keep science in mind when considering these projects
7: there's how things work on paper and then there's how things work on the ground and
2: there's a lot of space in between the two
5: olson says the industry still needs to overcome challenges like methane leaks skeptics of this technology say among other things federal funding incentivizes participating farms to expand their operations creating more nuisance issues for surrounding communities Still, Olson says the industry should be given time to address the shortcomings. REAP, which stands for Rural Energy for America program, also funds wind and solar projects on farm sites. Olson notes there's been added support from the Inflation Reduction Act to expand outreach and technical assistance as a way to boost interest. So I'm hoping to see a lot more good energy efficiency projects from them, which is the number one place we should be starting. Olson says improvements to grain dryers that can help reduce natural gas use and harvesting are another example of energy efficiency efforts. As for digesters, a report from the Wisconsin Office of Energy Innovation says there are 136 operating systems around the state, 34 tied to agriculture. This is Mike Mowen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org.
0: The time right now is 6.33, right on the dot, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us.
1: It's Monday night. Do you know where your government is and what it's doing? It's time now for Forward Lookout.
8: All right, it's Monday and we're talking to Brenda Conkle about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. Uh, already happened today, 1130, the aligned Energy Center Redevelopment Committee. Brenda, tell us all about this. Yeah,
6: it seems like they've been kind of quiet, but all of a sudden they started meeting again. So I'm not sure what's what's up there, but they'll be getting some um, reports. It could be because part of it is that they are looking for uh director pos- uh, director position, that might be part of what slowed them down a little bit. Um, but they're going to be looking at the facilities matrix and the final Hunden report and that matrix in there. So I think that they're looking at like kind of really diving into the details at this point.
8: You know, with the any kind of stadium, the trend is to like build all around it, like restaurants and housing. So is that, you think that's what they're trying to do?
6: Yeah, I, I do think that that's the plan is to really make it a a, a real community out there so the people who are visiting will have lots of things to do and also make it a, uh, to some extent uh, an asset for um people who actually live here in madison as well at least that's what you hear the intentions are we'll see
8: <laughs> in tuesday there is an election you might not have noticed just because i think there's only two districts in madison for Dane county supervisor that have a primary definitely look out for that because it is an, it is primary day tomorrow still on dane county let's talk about the tree
6: board which is um yeah they're they're talking trees yes the tree board um so they're still working on their operating agreement for the members there they also will um be celebrating dane county land and water resource earth week which they will be giving trees away on april 22nd which is also i believe earth, uh, earth day and then they will also be um working on some outreach about their website and Operation Fresh Start is going to do some cage construction for some of the new trees. And then they're also going to be looking at a student member.
8: And then 5.30 on Wednesday, we have the Youth Commission and they're meeting at 5.30 at the city county building.
6: I also think they haven't been meeting a whole lot, probably over uh, spring break and such, but um, they are going to be talking about funding for their grants for the next year. And then they have some voter registration events that they are working on, as well as they are looking at the Dane County Youth Assessment when they do a survey to find out um, what youth in Dane County need. And then they also to be getting a homelessness presentation if time permits.
8: And Thursday, we have a, a looks like a joint meeting with the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee and the Health and Human Needs Committee. They don't pair up too often. So, yeah, what's on their agenda?
6: Yeah, they'll be looking at... Um, how many Dane County youth are staying at Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake. Um, They'll be getting a presentation about that. They'll also be getting a presentation about behavioral health and crisis services update. So that would be um, some of the emergency services that Dane County has. And then they are also going to be talking about the fair chance housing fund application. Um, So they have several materials there with the guidelines and um, what they plan to do for
8: that let's move on to the city of madison on tuesday we have a possible notice of the common council and it looks like they'll be getting some mental health and mental health training
6: yeah nami or the national alliance on mental illness will be doing a four-hour training for alders and they've been invited to take part in that uh primarily this is because they do interact with the public and they want to make sure that if they are working with somebody who might be possibly having a mental health crisis they can talk to them the best way possible as well as help get them some assistance if it's needed
8: yeah good training for just about anybody all right wednesday the street use staff commission is approving some events uh yeah what do we have in store i mean event season's already in full swing somehow
6: (laughs) it certainly is uh strictly discs will be having a record store day um and they apparently expecting so many people that they need to block off traffic so that people standing in line will be able to get into the store So we'll see once how that goes on April 20th. Um, Safety Saturday up on the square. um, That's the fire department does that. Um, There's a couple marathons and then opera in the park, uh, bree Stevens Field events. Um, So those both of those are um, multiple events throughout the summer. And then Monona is having a Memorial Day parade.
8: On Wednesday, we have the Board of Public Works meeting at 430. It's a virtual meeting and they have a pretty lengthy agenda. So, yeah, Public Works a proven projects
6: yeah so a little bit controversial they are approving the plans and specs for rutledge street reconstruction reconstruction and i know that has been a big issue with folks who live in that neighborhood they're also going to be looking at the honorary street name program and revising some of the street naming policies that they have um there's a couple of projects where they're approving plans and specs on yellowstone drive grand canyon drive and then there's some new um, assessment districts coming up where if you live in these areas, you might be interested in what they're going to be doing to your street on North Franklin and Stephen Street, as well as Doncaster, Beverly Road, and Danbury Street, and then Hermina and Union Street. And then they have a few other items. There's one about uh, water main rehabilitation, which is interesting. Uh, they have a way to go into the pipes and, and blow up some plastic and and make the pipes good for another 50 years. So they, they're approving that for the next year as well. Blowing stuff up. Yes. The other thing that might be of interest is they do have the, um, well, 15 PFAS treatment facility. They'll be awarding the public works contract for that.
8: Very nice. At 530 on Wednesday, we have the Alcohol License Review Committee. And uh, I know they have one um, kind of one interesting item having to do with McTaggart's. You probably don't know about this, Brenda, but McTaggart's wants to sell like, you know, like those Moscow mules in a can. Right. Uh huh. So they're very similar to like a wine or a beer, but they're technically alcohol. So McTaggart's wants to sell those, but the ALRC is sort of debating the best way to do that. So anything else happening A note uh, at that meeting?
6: They also have um, a short list of public hearings. It's a, it's a shorter agenda than usual. So they have um, 1602 West Beltline, 2601 West Beltline, 72 West Palm Mall, 1129 South Park Street, and one, uh, 2022 Fordham Avenue. So a few new liquor licenses. Some of them may just be transferring, um, but there's um, public hearings on those.
8: And Thursday at 445, we have a virtual meeting of the Joint Campus Area Committee. And, and they always have a bunch on their agenda.
6: Oh, they certainly do. Um, so one of the main things that looks like they'll be doing is they'll get the Lakeshore Nature Preserve Master Plan. They'll be looking at that. And then they um, have the long list of projects. Um, the UW has all of their um, projects on a list, and then UW Health has their projects, as well as the City of Madison. So it's a, it's a long list of things that are always developing in the campus area, and you might want to take a look at upcoming projects.
8: Indeed. And we have two meetings on Thursday, uh, the, the Disability Rights Commission and the Police Civilian Oversight Board that do not have any agendas on them. So TISC-TISC, well, hopefully those will get added soon. And then Friday, we have the Board of Canvassers for the City of Madison meeting at the Municipal Building. And they'll, of course, be going over those two districts um, that had primaries. So don't forget to vote if you're in those districts. Brenda, thank you so much for helping us run through what's going on in local government this week.
6: No problem.
0: The Progressive National Lawyers Guild was founded 87 years ago today. In 1937, the Guild's main goals were to support FDR's New Deal and the burgeoning of <laughs> labor movement. Today, they're still going strong, supporting social justice causes like Black Lives Matter, labor unions, and Palestinian rights. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story.
7: For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggled brave and long. The union men and women standing up and standing
4: strong. Today, February 19th, is the anniversary of the founding of the National Lawyers Guild, NLG, in 1937. The guild was the first national association of lawyers to forego racial and religious tests for membership. Early members include African Americans, white New Deal liberals, and some Communist Party members. The group's goal was to support the New Deal and the exploding labor movement. Among the Guild's early leaders were American Civil Liberties Union Counsel Morris Ernst and future Supreme Court Justices Abe Fortas and Robert H. Jackson. Ernst reportedly intended for the Guild to function as the legal arm of the New Deal. Many NLG founders were active in the labor movement, including the chief counsels for the AFL and the CIO. A number of early leaders were communists. Liberals, though, quickly became wary of the CP members. In early 1939, Ernst tried to amend the Guild's constitution to oppose dictatorships of any kind, whether fascist, Nazi, or communistic. The resolution failed. Tensions rose after revelations of a non-aggression treaty between the Soviets and the Nazis. Most of the Guild's prominent liberals resigned by mid-1940 membership went from 4,000 to 1,000. After Germany invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, American communists changed their stance on what they viewed as an imperialist war where the U.S. should be neutral. Thereafter, the Guild also supported the Allied war efforts as well as radical social movements domestically. In 1944, the NLG produced a report laying out the case for prosecuting Nazi war criminals, including anticipating and rebutting arguments that certain defendants would likely make and in 1946, several Guild lawyers were involved in the Nuremberg trials. Membership grew steadily in the 40s. By early 1947, the Guild had 2,500 members and 500 affiliate law students. The 1946 convention called for a program including full employment, rent control, housing, and Social Security. The Guild vigorously opposed taft Hartley, saying it instantly erased many gains of organized labor over the past 15 years. The act required union officials to sign affidavits that they were not communists. As a direct result of Taft Harley, the labor movement soon purged itself of radical leadership. Guild attorneys and major unions lost their jobs, including at the Congress of Industrial Organization, CIO, the United Auto Workers, and the National Maritime Union. During McCarthyism, the guild continued to fight the good fight. In 1947, the guild called Truman's executive order to investigate the loyalty of federal employees outrageous, and designed to control the thoughts and limits of the freedom of association of all employees in government, including attorneys. The Guild committed to representing a number of high-profile cases. Perhaps the most famous was the Rosenbergs, alleged Soviet spies. In late 1947, the Guild represented ten Hollywood film writers who refused to testify before the House on American Activities Committee, HUAC, and were ultimately imprisoned. In 1948, Guild attorneys represented 11 CP members who were tried under the Smith Act, which criminalized advocating the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. All were convicted and sentenced to prison terms ranging from three to five years. Five Guild attorneys were cited for contempt and also imprisoned for a time. The FBI surveilled the Guild from 1940 to 1975, illegally entering the Guild's D.C. offices at least 14 times between 1947 and 1951 alone. In 1989, the FBI admitted to the break-ins. The Guild reviewed a 1949 case to charge Judith Copland, a Justice Department employee, with spying for the Soviet Union, concluding that the FBI may commit more federal crimes than it ever detects. Then, UAC investigated the Guild itself as an alleged communist front, and the FBI tried to get the Guild listed as a subversive organization, but failed. Under constant attack, membership again declined sharply, but the Guild retained its principles throughout the years, supporting social justice movements, black liberation struggles, unions, and Palestinian rights. Most recently, they supported the International Court of Justice's preliminary ruling that says, in part, third states are now on notice of a serious risk of genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza the guild has again grown in membership to 9,000 strong and that is our story for today for the past in the past I'm Harry Richardson
0: need a stiff drink after a long day wort reporter Charlie Bielski has you covered with his new feature Madison mixology every monday he'll share the history behind a mixed beverage and a how to guide so you can make your own at home this week this week he's kicking things off with grog A drink with a history stretching back into the 1600s. There
7: we go. Just like that. Hello everybody and welcome to Madison Mixology. I'm your host and favorite reporter, Charlie Belosky. I'm here to teach you how to make a new mixed drink every week with a little bit of background about the drink as well. Today's mixed drink is grog. You see, back in the mid 1600s, fresh water was a necessity on long voyages across the sea. It was difficult to transport, however, because the stagnant water would often grow algae and become slimy and unfit for consumption. Attempts at remedying this included mixing the water with ale or wine, but they would often spoil very quickly. In 1655, the English conquered Jamaica and it became commonplace to bring Caribbean rum on board the ships. Rum rations tended to be saved and drank all at once by the sailors, which led to drunk and belligerent behavior. To remedy this, the rum was watered down, One of the first men to issue this concoction to his men was Admiral Edward Vernon of the English Navy. Unfortunately, the watered-down rum spoiled just as quickly as its ale and wine counterparts. A common misconception is that lime juice was added in an attempt to preserve it and stave off scurvy. In reality, the lime juice was added because it was thought to help with digestion and internal putrefaction. These ingredients, along with a bit of sweetener, make up what we know as grog today. First, you're going to want to start with a glass full of ice. And then from there, you're going to want to add two ounces of navy rum. Let me get all this settled away here. There we go. Just like that. Perfect. And now from there, if you don't have navy rum, basically any sort of dark rum works just fine. Once that's in, you want to add about an ounce and a half of chilled water. Then about a half ounce of lime juice. There we go. Look at that. Perfect. And then from there, you want to go with about another half ounce of simple syrup. Now there's another way that you can actually make this without the simple syrup. And you can use instead brown sugar. And some people refer to that as a grog old-fashioned. I'm not trying that myself today, but it's just... it's something else you could try. After that, you're going to want to stir the drink up. Now let's give it a try. See what this bad boy tastes like. You know, it kind of reminds me, a while back I went to this bar and they had this IPA. It was called the Key Lime Pie IPA. And, you know, when you tasted it, you know, it, it tasted as the name would suggest, like Key Lime Pie. And honestly, when I'm drinking this, I'm not sure if it's just because I might have added too much lime juice or what, but it tastes very akin to that Key Lime Pie IPA, except instead of, you know, hops and barley, it's using Caribbean rum instead. It's light, it's refreshing, but it's on the dry side, I will say that. It's not bad in the slightest though, it's very, it's very good, actually. Like, surprisingly, very refreshing. Did you know that Grog got its name from Admiral Vernon? The man I mentioned before, he wore a coat of uh, grogram cloth, is what it was called, is grogram cloth, hence his nickname that he got, old grogram or old grog. Uh, the sailors under his command eventually took to calling the rum and water rations that they got grog because of him. And as I said before, eventually the lime juice was added, and it gave it that very kind of like uh, tart taste. It's very, it is very tart as well. Another cool fact for you. Grog rations were actually distributed all the way through to the 1970s. So from like 1650, 1655, all the way up to the 1970s. And uh, it really, because of that long period of time, it really cemented its synonymity with uh, sailors in the open sea. Which is why, you know, you see all all that stuff about like pirates and drinking Grog and such. Yeah, it's not bad though. Very refreshing. Uh, that's all for this episode. I'm your host, Charlie Biloski, and this has been Madison Mixology. I'll catch you next time.
1: Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. American Fiction is on the big screen and has been nominated for five Academy Awards. Harry says the film is a pretty good satire on the book and movie industry. And Dream Scenario, a small screen production featuring Nick Cage, follows an ordinary man who starts appearing in Stranger's Dreams. Harry says it's a well done offbeat satire.
4: If they want stereotypes, I'll give them one. What is this? Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. That's black, right? Nobody's gonna publish this. Just wanna rub their noses in it? We love it. What? What?
3: It is very, ah.
4: Black. And that was clipped clip from the trailer for American Fiction, written and directed by Cord Jefferson. This is a pretty good satire that received five Academy Award nominations. It's based on a novel, Erasure, by Percival Everett. The acting is solid, led by Jeffrey Wright as Thelonious Monk Ellison, a Southern literature professor in L.A. Monk has written several books, but has not achieved the recognition or sales he feels he deserves. After being put on leave over posting the N-word, in his class, he goes back to Boston for a book festival where he has to see his estranged siblings and mom. He is not looking forward to it. Ted insult to injury, the attendance at a joint talk he is at is small, where the meeting next door is huge that gathering features centera isa ray who is persuaded to read a little from her new hit book up until that point she has done a friendly interview in standard english but when she reads from her book she goes into a stereotypical dialect centera gets a standing ovation and monk is flabbergasted after drinking up his sorrows he hatches a plan to troll the ridiculous publishing industry. He decides to write a book pandering to white stereotypes. His agent and friend, Arthur John Ortiz, tries to dissuade him but finally agrees to send it out to only two publishers. To Arthur's delight and Monk's horror, he is offered a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar advance. Monk wants to withdraw the book, but Arthur persuades him to go along with the ruse. Monk agrees. He really needs the money. He's suddenly become the sole financial support for his mother, Agnes. A great Leslie Uggams, his sister Lisa, Tracy Ellis Ross, a doctor, has suddenly died, and his plastic surgeon brother Cliff, a fun scene-stealing Sterling K. Brown, is in no condition to help out. Monk made up a pseudonym Stag R. Lee, though white publishers guess it's a fake name, at a phone conference meeting with Monk and his agent. Arthur says, yes, there's a pseudonym, my client is on the run for a crime. Monk reluctantly plays along and the publishers gush about the book and hint about a possible movie deal. Incredibly, a movie deal is soon in the works, leading to a fairly believable but disappointing ending. all, in all A good film, worthy of its Academy Award nominations. Up next, another film with a professor who wants to write a book. You know, fame can come with some less desirable side effects. We should be prepared for that.
6: Maybe we should cool this thing off. What?
4: What do you mean? It's embarrassing. Which part? That was lived from the trailer for A Dream Scenario, a surreal satire directed by Christopher Borgley. This movie has an intriguing original premise with an ordinary regular guy college professor, Paul Matthews, a great Nicolas Cage. Paul suddenly starts appearing in other people's dreams. Our opening scene turns out to be a dream of one of his daughters who notes that he does nothing to help her, just stands there as she floats away. He's a little upset by the dream. Is that how you see me? He asks. His sensible spouse, Janet Matthews, Matthews, Julie Ann Nicholson rejoins him. Don't make her feel guilty about her dreams. Soon, it turns out that people all over his campus and town and people he hasn't seen for years are suddenly saying, I saw you in my dream. Paul ignores his spouse's warnings and thinks a little notoriety would help him get that book he's always meant to write published. Things start off harmlessly enough with a former girlfriend asking if she can mention him in her blog. She says she needs this. Paul is a little flattered and having been turned down for recognition by a colleague who's getting written up in nature, gives his permission. Soon students are flooding his class and want to meet him and talk about their dreams. Oddly, in each dream he does nothing, just sort of walks through, even when some horrible things are happening to the dreamers. He goes on a local TV show and becomes a sort of local celebrity. Then he's persuaded to meet with some publicists who are interested in monetizing his fame to sell Sprite. For starters, he doesn't want to sell Sprite but still thinks they can help him get his book published. He has attracted the special attention of one of the trio, Greta Star Slade. He was in an erotic dream she had. He's intrigued because up to this point he hadn't really done anything in the dreams and because, well, she's young and attractive. What follows is what one reviewer rightly calls a cringeworthy scene. After this, things go downhill. Paul appears in more people's dreams, but he becomes violent. In the dreams, not real life. An intriguing original film, even though the ending is a little sad. Well, worth your time, but it's just too offbeat to be nominated for any awards. You recently started streaming on Voodoo and other services. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: And that'll do it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Charlie Belosky. Thanks also to Nicholas Leet for technical production and Bill Kingsbury for web production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show tonight. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz.
1: And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, the Access Hour. Have a great night.